I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Welcome back for another episode. Today's guest is Adrian Lushpe-Kuti. She's a research scientist at Southwest Research Institute. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So um, let's start with the, the easy question. What do you do as a research scientist? Okay, so I'm a planetary scientist. So that means I basically study planetary bodies in the solar system. And what I am focused on or where my interest is, is the outer solar system. So I study satellites and comets in the outer solar system, basically. And when you say study, what, what does that mean? Are you looking at pictures? Are you looking at data? What, what kind, how do you study them? Right. So um, several different ways. Uh, there's some photochemical modeling that I do um, for Saturn's largest moon, Titan. So Titan has a really thick atmosphere, which is very interesting um, to see in the outer solar system to such a small satellite. And there's a very active organic chemistry that happens in Titan's atmosphere. And that's basically what I study through photochemical modeling. So I sit in front of a computer and I tweak parameters and I look at the output and, you know, obviously the goal is to match the output of the model as closely to observations by spacecraft as much as we can. So um, I do that uh, half time of my research and then I'm also a science team member of one of the instruments on the Rosetta spacecraft, which uh, was a highly successful mission that recently ended um, orbiting a comet for the first time. So I am a science team member for the mass spectrometer on the spacecraft, meaning I look at data that was collected by the mass spectrometer, and then I analyze it, and I draw conclusions as to what might be happening on the comet so that we understand how comets work. Um, let's go back to Titan just a minute, and we'll come back to Rosetta because that sounds fascinating. Um, when you say you sort of look at the data and you study these models, what data are you looking at, and from how, are, how is this data being collected? Um, basically, the Cassini orbiter uh, provided us with a huge amount of highly, highly valuable data, and it's a highly successful mission. So whatever profiles we get as far as um, the species in the atmosphere, like density profiles, uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to model um, the chemistry and then match the model profiles to the observed density profiles in Titan's atmosphere. And and what's the, I, I guess, what's the purpose of doing this? Um, that is to understand what's happening physically in this planetary atmosphere. So like I said earlier, Titan is really interesting. Like, first of all, it's it's a large satellite, but it is a small planetary body to possess such a thick atmosphere, right? So we don't really understand why it has one to begin with. Now, there's not only that, but like I said, there's a very active organic chemistry that happens in its atmosphere. So it's two major atmospheric constituents, uh, nitrogen and methane, get broken apart and ionized by um, solar photons. 
And this initiates a very complex chemistry that cascades down and ends up making really, really, really heavy organic molecules and ultimately uh, haze particles, which is basically that orange uh, haze that we see when we look at an image of Titan. So the purpose of it is really to understand what is happening physically and chemically in Titan's atmosphere that results in the outcome that we see. Is there anything else remotely close to this, or or is Titan sort of its own strange thing? Um, Pluto, surprisingly, is similar in the aspect of chemistry. Now, Pluto has a very thin atmosphere, but it's also mainly composed of nitrogen and methane. So uh, what we see is that the chemistry that happens on Titan is very similar to the chemistry that happens on Pluto. And we know this, or at least have some idea about this, uh, based on the recent New Horizons flyby and the data it provided, which was also very valuable. So did you mention the, the New Horizons stuff? Did that change the research you were doing? Or, or is it just nice to have a reference that's more specific or more uh, data friendly? No, it definitely changed it because, you know, for like someone who does photochemical modeling and someone who is focused on Titan, Pluto is the next logical step, especially in the light of these uh like great data that we got from New Horizons. Now, I'm not part of the uh, mission, New Horizons, but, you know, we can look at publications and the data that's being shared, and then we can use those two to tweak our models in a way that they're more representative of Pluto, and then look at what happens there. So that's also something I started working on recently. What's the timeline for something like this between data collection and then uh, when you get it to kind of, you know, analysis and, and finding some type of conclusion or result? Well, that usually depends on the mission and how they decide to handle their data sets and how quickly they decide to publish uh, the data. Learning all of this stuff and learning the, the, the breakdown of, of the atmosphere, what what's the next step on that? What do you do with once you can model it or once you think you can model it? What, what does that help you do next? Okay, so I don't really model that with the comet. I do oh, okay. something else. <laughs> I look at these data from the atmosphere, and what I'm interested in is the ices of the comet itself, so the composition mm -hmm. of the comet. And the reason I'm interested in that um, and the type of ice is that it can give us information on the conditions in the beginning of the formation of our solar system. So comets... Oh, so just minor things. <laughs> yeah, no big deal, you know. <laughs> How did our solar system form? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so comets are generally thought of as leftover material from the time of the formation of the planets and even before. So since they're these, well, I hate to say it, but primitive bodies in a way, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. When you look at them, they're still the best preserved material from that time. And if you look at it, that really can tell you a lot um, about the conditions present at that time. So, for instance, um, you know, some of the questions that are of high interest is... Uh, okay, were these grains that formed comets and ultimately the planets and planetary bodies, were they formed after um, the 
protoplanetary disk was formed or were they just infalling material from the um, interstellar medium? <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, how did you become a planetary scientist? When did you decide that was what you wanted to do? Okay, so I'm one of those people who knew fairly early on, you know, <laughs> that I wanted to do science. In fact, I was in kindergarten, so about five years old. When I oh, decided, that's pretty early. Yeah, <laughs> I just I was just fascinated by astronomy and the planets and all that. So, you know, I decided I was going to be an astronomer. So that was my plan for for quite a while. So every time somebody would ask me, I would just say, yeah, I'm going to be an astronomer. And then they would just smile and, oh, ha, ha, you know, how cute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then when I hit high school, you know, and things change and you get input from other people on what you should be doing with your life, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of got off track a little bit and I was considering doing something else. Um, I was told I was good at languages and I should definitely, you know, do something with that or um, benefit something off of that. And I was like, yeah, sure, sure. But that doesn't get me excited. You know, that's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I was... Um, in my last year in high school and I was really debating over what would be the best thing to do and I think the main reason why people not really tried to convince me not to do science but more like you know they didn't quite take it seriously was that uh, generally I think or at least where I'm from which is um, Hungary many people just don't see that scientists can make a living or a good mm -hmm. living and there's mm -hmm. you know some reasons to that but I figured if, if I'm going to be studying something in college for at least four years, then it better be something I'm interested in. So I went back to my dream and I said, no, I'm going to be an astronomer. And then I did become an astronomer. I got my master's uh, back in Budapest, Hungary, uh, in astronomy. And while I was uh, studying physics and astronomy, I just started becoming interested in planets more and more. And so I picked um, a planetary topic for my master's thesis, uh, which at that point was Mars and just studying uh, like remnant ice patches in the polar regions of Mars. And uh, this is basically what started me off on the planetary or in the planetary direction. And then I knew I wanted to get my doctorate and I knew I wanted to focus on planetary science. I wasn't so much uh, focused on sticking with Mars as much as, you know, sure, if it's interesting, I'll do it or I'm open to other things. And that's when I got offered a position at the University of Arkansas for um, a PhD. And so I went for it and that's where I got my doctorate from. Um, that's when I started wandering out to the outer solar system more because... <laughs> because <laughs> Just wander a little farther, yeah, just keep looking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> too much interest in Mars. I like doing stuff that are a little more mysterious. No, just kidding. <laughs> I don't want to offend the Mars community by any means. So maybe no, we know a few out. of them. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's also very interesting. But at the time I was... Um, hired as a research assistant, uh, as a graduate student, uh, my advisor just received 
a pretty big grant from the Outer Planets uh, NASA program, which was for four years, and it was basically studying the stability of liquids on the surface of Titan. And he received this money for simulating the conditions on Titan, on the surface of Titan, and experimentally measuring, you know, the kinetics of these liquids. And so uh, I was just hired to do that, and I was involved in that project from the very beginning, which was great, and I really liked it. And we built this simulation chamber pretty much from scratch, which I'm really proud of because it was a very uh, focused effort on the side of just a handful of graduate students. And we got really good science out of it. So that's when I realized that I really liked doing these, you know, this thermodynamic stuff with uh, exotic mixtures of um, cryogenic liquids and ices and whatnot. Well, let's back up a little bit. How do you, how do you, how do you build a simulation chamber? I, yeah. And what is it? <laughs> yeah. So uh, pretty much the goal was to, to recreate the surface temperature and pressure conditions on Titan. And the reason why there wasn't any chambers like that is because they're not easy to make, clearly. So <laughs> we're talking about 90K on the surface and 1.5 bar. Okay, so 90K would be what, like minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So that's really cold. And then we had to make it into pure nitrogen atmosphere, you know, get rid of water as much as possible because there's not a whole lot of water in the atmosphere of Titan. And we had to make the conditions cold enough that we could turn methane and ethane into liquid. And we did just that. So to answer the question how, well, yeah, that was that was a difficult route. And we were fortunate enough to have, as one of the graduate students at the time, somebody who worked as an aerospace engineer for most of his career. So he was, at that point, basically an older guy, you know, coming back to grad school wanting to get his PhD. But he had an extensive experience in the whole, like the engineering of building stuff. And so he took the lead on it and directed us um, like how to make it work. And this literally involved just salvaging stuff laying around the lab from that, you know, to ordering like obviously more sophisticated, more expensive stuff from the grant that my advisor had. And so then you could run like simulations? Like, how would you how did it work? You were able to change change specific parts of it to see what worked and what didn't? So it was a big stainless steel chamber. It was about two meters tall and maybe about you know two people two people's wide. Mm -hmm. um, it was a pretty massive chamber and we had a module that we could lower into it where, which is basically what we focused on. So we lowered the temperature in there um, with liquid nitrogen to 90K or 94K. And we had everything hooked up uh, through lines that we were able to, you know, put the gases in that we were interested in, which obviously would condense under the conditions that we created inside that stainless steel tube. And once that happened, uh, 
we just measured what happens afterwards. So this pan where we condensed our liquids was connected to a scale which was kept warmer so it can operate properly. And we also had a webcam in there so we could also see what was happening more or less because, you know, webcams tend not to work too well under 90K. So sometimes <laughs> we got something, sometimes we didn't, but we definitely could uh, record data and see how the mass was changing under the given conditions. And that information I could take and, you know, just interpret and then try to model, which again is a key component in what we're doing. So you're basically, you basically want three things going on at the same time, and that's the ideal case. You want your spacecraft observations, um, you want your models, which will help you understand the spacecraft observations, but you also want laboratory data, which is a key component that gets overlooked a lot um, in this process, because on one hand, it validates or not your model, and also can provide important constraints that models need as input parameters. So we basically filled that hole um, as far as Titan surface liquids go. You mentioned um, that not many people study outer planets um, and the outer, outer space solar system. Is that, I mean, how, how many is not many? I mean, we know a lot of people study Mars. Everybody talks about Mars. There's movies about Mars. There's planned trips to Mars. But, but how small is the contingent that sort of looks past that? Oh, no, a lot of people study outer um, okay. planets or outer solar system. Not a lot of people simulate the conditions of outer planetary bodies. You know, so yeah. that's yeah, that that depends on the focus of a given research group and what you have money for. Mars getting a lot of attention is kind of mm -hmm. natural for its proximity and its potential for harboring life, which many people are focused on. And it's definitely interesting. But as technology allowed us to go and explore the outer solar system, we started discovering how interesting stuff that everybody thought were just boring rocks really were, you know? We mm -hmm. started seeing these plumes spewing out of one of Saturn's moons, and then we saw Titan, and, you know, like, we knew something about its atmosphere from the Voyagers, but we got, like, just so, so much more information from the Cassini spacecraft. And so, uh, basically, the exploration of the outer solar system started shifting the focus more towards, um, you know, putting some effort into understanding these bodies too. And what I'm talking about mainly right now is the icy moons or the moons of um, the giant planets. This might be a dumb question or a very obvious answer, but what's, what are some of the differences between studying is sort of interplanetary or near planets and, and sort of outer ones? Um, you know, in your methods, there really isn't much. Uh, really, it just depends on the focus um, and on what you do. So, uh, like I said, I'm interested in ices and things that aren't frozen in the inner solar system because it's just too warm. So we really don't know much about them. Um, they don't exist in an ice phase on Earth. They don't exist in an ice phase on Mars. And I'm talking about methane, ethane, uh, various hydrocarbons that do exist in a liquid form on Titan or that do exist in an ice form on a comet. So, uh, 
the physics you use or the tools you use to study outer solar system objects is the same. It's more just what you learn from it or how you approach it that's somewhat different. And again, that depends on the conditions of the given target you're studying. So um, obviously you've worked on lots of different parts of this and, and building the simulation chamber is very different than, than just you know looking at crunching numbers. What part or what are you working on that gets you really excited um, about what you do or what that's coming down the line that you're really looking forward to being able to work with or on, whether it's data or new software or new something? Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, being able to participate in the Rosetta mission or like to become a science team member on that one instrument was a huge thing because seeing things for the first time is just so exciting you know it's like you see something that nobody knows about and nobody had any clue about and you see those data for the first time and you get the chance to look at it and and start figuring out what might be happening so that to me is a very important part in why I love doing what I do and just really the idea of discovering unknown things, I guess. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, there's a lot of that in the outer space, isn't there? Absolutely. <laughs> well, outer solar system. Yeah. Outer so sorry, outer solar system. Well, oh, there's, there's even more in outer space. So. Oh yeah, that'll go on. There's so much more to learn out there. Sure, yeah. Is there any um, sort of technology or lack of technology that you're kind of just sitting there waiting for um, engineers to figure out how to do so that you can you know, get the results that you want or get the data that you want? Um, well, obviously, we take a lot of knowledge from these missions. So the more missions we have going out there and the more data they collect, you know, the more helpful that is to us trying to figure um, out how these planetary bodies work. So um, basically... What I'm looking forward to, or I'm hoping will be happening, is another mission to a comet that would, uh, let's say, land on the surface of the comet again, like uh, Philae did on the Rosetta mission. But this time, I would be just so interested if somehow we could solve digging down into the nucleus and just looking down there, what's there, what kind of ice is it, you know, what phase does it exist in, like how does, how does the interior of a comet look? So um, the answer to your question would be, yes, a combination of another mission and then taking uh, technology or instrumentation that were not taken on this uh, really historic mission of Rosetta. No, I mean, how quickly does this tech change with what you're working on? I mean, is it like, you know, you're pretty, I mean, I, we know that when you send a satellite or on a mission, I mean, it's it's decades in the making or many years in the making and the computers that are on this thing are obsolete by the time they even go into space. Um, you know, I, I always marvel at that, you know, the computers are running, you know, things we'd never work with here on, on Earth. But, um, you know, how, how quickly does, does that kind of stuff change or become usable or do you have, to, does it decades or, you know, forever mm -hmm. in the making. So I think uh, most of the technology exists. Uh, the challenge is, is making it small enough to fit on a spacecraft or making it operate properly under the given conditions. So uh, that 
I think does develop as there's need for it. And like you said, there is um, usually quite a big time frame that occurs between, you know, uh, selecting what instruments will go on a given spacecraft and then that spacecraft actually launching and going out to space. So uh, typically, you know, these things, they make them happen just like they did with the mass spectrometer um, on Rosetta. No other spacecraft carried a mass spectrometer with the capabilities of this one, and then Rosetta did, and it's mm -hmm. great. So I'm hoping this will be something that will be um, put on some other spacecrafts in the future, studying other planetary bodies. So, so the mass spectrometer data that you're using is never, nobody's ever had that data before, right? Um, no. Not from a mass spectrometer? No, uh, okay. not from space or not from space. measuring, not measuring a planetary body. Correct. Well, that, but that's exciting then, because you're, you know, you're, not only are you learning something new that people don't have, but you're, you're messing with data that many people or most people haven't even gotten to play with. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I meant by the excitement of being able to see these data for the first time, you know, and just, just being the one who's like, oh my gosh, like this is awesome. So, yeah. How yeah. often do you say that when you're sitting at your computer? Yeah, that depends. <laughs> Are you ever sitting there going, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's mainly when I push through the hard part and I do see something interesting. <laughs> and, that's, and then I feel it was all worth it. But, you know, there's a lot of cussing that goes into it beforehand. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think we've all been there. I like one. I like that visual, just like scientists sitting around cussing. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. And then all of a sudden you see something, but you know this is <laughs> this is not really how it happens. But it's pretty close <laughs> sometimes if you get lucky. Yeah. So, but then you know you often think um, looking at these data that oh how awesome would it have been if whichever other spacecraft had this mass spectrometer on it. You know what oh, I mean? Right, yeah. It's like, oh, well, we would know, we, would, we could tell this apart from that, and then we would know so much more. So this time we had that for this one particular comet, and I think it's, it's great, and it, it's telling us a lot. Well, that's wonderful. Well, um, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate it and have learned so much about other planets. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts.